read God's word to us, I just want to, on behalf of Angie and I, express um, our deepest gratitude to the very warm welcome uh, and generosity that you've all extended to us. Um, we are deeply um, grateful and um, very much um, have been encouraged by your love and your fellowship. Um, last week, we looked at the letter of 2 John. Today, we're going to be looking at the letter of 3 John. Um, my normal practice, actually, in my church in Sydney is I have question time after the, after the sermon. We're not going to do that here. Um, but somebody asked me a very good question last week, uh, and I'd just like to bring this to your attention because I think I needed to explain it. Uh, if you open your Bibles to 2 John, um, if you've got your Bibles handy or you can take out your phone, that's a really easy way of doing it as well. And I won't, I won't obviously read the whole letter again. Uh, but if you look at the end of the letter um, to verse uh, 10, it says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, the question is, well, what does that mean then for us as we interact with non-Christian people? Um, should we have nothing to do with um, people that don't hold to uh, our beliefs or, or our values? And as the Apostle Paul would say, may that never be. Uh, we are to be all things to all men. Um, Christ died and he came to save sinners, of whom Paul says, I am the very worst. Uh, indeed, the Apostle Paul says, doesn't he, um, that we want to do all things by all means that we could possibly save some. So what does this passage mean then? What does it mean that we are not to welcome some people into our house and that if we do, we share in their wicked work? Well, I think it means in particular in this context that we're not to have anything to do with false teachers. Uh, and that's a really, really important thing because we know, don't we, as Christians, that we have a true and living God and we also have a real enemy. We have a real enemy that wants to take us away from the truth which we looked at last week. And friends, can I say that one of, the, one of the ways that Satan, one of his most effective ways throughout all of church history, that Satan has taken people away from the truth is through false teaching. Indeed, remember the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Acts when he left the Ephesian elders and you have to stop and really think about what he's saying here. He said, for three years, three years, he never stopped warning them night and day and with tears that savage wolves would come into their number. And he said, actually, it would be from within. Uh, it's a sobering thing to really think of. And what makes this even more powerful, can I say, is that so much of what John has to say is not just about truth, but as we looked at last week, it's about love. We're to love as Christ loved us. So yes, we are to not you know, put ourselves away from the world or people that might live completely antithetical to the truth. We're to love them deeply and warmly and share our lives with them in all that messiness. But friends, we have to be still careful that we hold to the truth. And I think we've seen that in the last couple of years, haven't we? Love is love. is not a truth. It's a lie. 
In fact, it's not even an argument. It's a slogan. Love, as we saw last week, is obedience to God's word. That's what it means to walk in the truth. So today we're going to be looking at 3 John. So if you'd open your Bibles or you look inside the corner post, um, you'll see that it's written there. It's an awesome thing, isn't it, to hear the word of the living God? So let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we've just sung, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We ask that as we sit at your feet now, you would open your, your word to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would implant it deep in us, that you would convict us of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. That, Lord, you would reveal to us how much we are loved in Christ and that you would empower us to love just as we have been loved. Father, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word and we pray, Father, for myself that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. Father, bless us, we pray, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 3 John, starting from verse 1 through to verse 14. And brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honours God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such people that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. 
I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. We come today to the shortest book in the New Testament. But once again, just as we saw last week from 2 John, just because it is short doesn't mean that it is not also incredibly powerful. In many ways, I like to think of 3 John as being 2 John's twin brother or sister. My wife is actually an identical twin. Uh, And I've only ever made the mistake of confusing her with her sister once. And can I just say in my defence, it was dark, it was late at night, we'd only been dating for about a month and it was raining. (laughs) I was amazed, I'm still amazed at how upset she is of that one occasion. (laughs) It was once. We're nothing alike, she said. You look exactly the same. I mean, you're identical twins. Now, while my wife would freely acknowledge that there is a passing similarity, the differences are what set them apart. And you know, it's exactly the same with God's Word. Let me just give you a couple of um, examples as to why 2 and 3 John are so different. 2 John is addressed to the whole church. Remember, John said that it was to the chosen lady and her children. 3 John is addressed to a particular individual named Gaius. Whereas 2 John warns against receiving false messengers, 3 John warns us or exhorts us not to reject true ones. What's more, whereas 2 John warns against satanic deception, 3 John warns us about spiritual dictatorship. In short, you could say that 2 John is concerned about the threat that comes from outside the church and 3 John is concerned about the threat which tragically arises from within the church. Now, John the Elder begins by describing what it means to literally prosper in the gospel. Or if you look at this another way, it contains a great example of a virtuous pastor. Verse 2. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that you may prosper even as your soul is prospering. Prosperity is one of those trigger words Uh, that gets a response as soon as you mention it, isn't it? Particularly amongst evangelical Christians. But just take a careful look again at what what John says in verse 2. Because his aim is that our spiritual health always matches our physical one. And as such, that our bodies are doing just as well as our souls. John says, verse 2, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health. It's a good thing to pray for. And that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Peter Jensen, uh, who's former Archbishop, Anglican Archbishop of 
Sydney used to say grace before every lunch when I was at Moore College with this particular quaint expression. He would pray, The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, to give them their meat in due season. <laughs> I encourage you, you know, at lunch today or perhaps at dinner, pray this with your children and see what sort of reaction you get. I remember complaining one day to the fellow, my fellow students going, what kind of prayer is this? And uh, one of the other lecturers there, Glenn Davies, graciously rebuked me. And he said, well, Mark, it's actually a quote from the Bible. And I, I said, oh, is it? <laughs> and when I looked up the verse and read what it said, it was even more pertinent than I had originally thought. It says this in Psalm 145, verse 15. The eyes of all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. That's what John is saying here. He's acknowledging that the Lord's goodness and mercy extends not just to our souls but to our bodies. However, notice that that is not the heart of John's joy. Now, just take a look specifically again at what he says in verses 3 and 4. Because John actually goes on to describe what true gospel prosperity entails. And once again, it's not about having a bigger bank account or about never experiencing sickness or hardship. No, John says in verse 3, it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. And then just listen to what he says next, because this is really the key. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see, what should we treasure most of all? What should be the thing that we really delight in? The thing that should give us the most joy is, as we saw last week, to walk in obedience to his commands. That is, that we're walking in love by being faithful to the truth. That is what it means to be truly prospering in the gospel. When my first son, Joshua, uh, was born, I said to one of the guys at church, he, he was a doctor at the time, that I really don't mind um, what he decides to do when he grows up. All I really care about for my son is that he trusts and follows Jesus. My deepest desire and prayer was that he would be able to stand next to me and sing the words of Be Thou My Vision and mean it. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Naught be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Seventeen years later, that man that I was with that day had left medicine and he had gone on 
into ministry and was a full-time chaplain at the school where my son uh, was attending and my son had become one of the school prefects. And at the church service where he was presented with his badge, he reminded me of our conversation all those years ago. And in the Lord's great providence, we actually sang, Be Thou My Vision, that day. And I got to witness how the Lord had answered my many prayers. But you know, that should be at the heart of not just every parent's prayers, but of every Christian's walk with Jesus. Our joy is that we are, and our children, are walking in the truth. The second point that John goes on to make, though, is in relation to a visiting preacher. Or if I can put it another way, the privilege of being involved in gospel proclamation. Because John makes this incredible instruction in verse 6. He says, You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that, they, so that we may work together for the truth. That's an incredible, relevant couple of verses, are they not? Did you notice how John said, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God? Do you honour those who serve God as missionaries that way? There is obviously something very important about supporting those who have been called into Christian ministry because he uses people like you and me. Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. I've heard lots of various things over the year about lots of beautiful people. I think my wife has some of the most beautiful hands. She could have earlier on been a hand model, right? She'll get very nervous about this because you all want to look at her hands later on. <laughs> but I've never actually ever heard somebody say, oh, they have such beautiful feet. You know, it's our feet that we try to cover up and hide, isn't it? You see, while we can't all be full-time missionaries or ministers of the gospel, we still have a responsibility to support those and partner with those in full-time gospel work. I once read a story about a man whose father was a mechanic uh, during the war in England. He said that he often remembered travelling missionaries calling into his uh, dad's workshop to have their cars repaired. What's more, he said it always seemed to strangely occur right around mealtime. But they were never turned away. Their cars were fixed and their bellies were filled. Reflecting on the events many years later, the man realised that his father was a true Gaius. Someone who, while he was quiet and unassuming, was just as much a part of the work of the gospel as anyone else was. And you know, that is where the true heroes 
of Christian ministry are to be found. It's very easy to do ministry like this because it's seen, it's visible, it's appreciated, it's remunerated. But it's in the anonymous acts of service that the church, let alone the world, will ever hear about. That's where the true heroes of the faith lie. Those deeds done in faith reap an eternal reward. Francis Schaeffer wrote, once wrote a book. Not many people have heard about this little book, but it's brilliant. I think it's his best one. It's called No Little People. And in it, he challenges the whole idea that if one is wholly consecrated to God, then it will result in God giving them a bigger platform or a bigger place. But just listen to what Schaefer says. He writes, Nowhere more than in America are Christians caught in the 20th century or the 21st century syndrome of size. Size will show success. If I am consecrated, there will necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc. Schaefer says, this is not so. Not only does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but he even reverses this, especially in the teaching of Jesus. And he tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place too big for us. Schaefer then goes on. He says, we all tend to emphasise big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. To think in such terms is simply to hearken back to the old, unconverted, egoistic, self-centred me. This attitude taken from the world is more dangerous to the Christian than fleshly amusements or practice. It is, uh, Schaefer says, it is the flesh. What a timely word of rebuke, first written over 40 years ago. Because those in Christian leadership are especially susceptible to fall into this kind of temptation. Just take a look at verses 9 and 10. Tragically, more than one church has been destroyed by this type of person. And even more tragically, I know that many of you could testify to having to endure this kind of thing. You see, John says in verse 9 that he wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, would have nothing to do with us. That is, he has become completely consumed with his own place and self-importance. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, John struggled with the same temptation himself. <laughs> it, it's sometimes in some ways when you think about it, it's kind of funny, you know. It's not. But he actually goes to get his, John and James get their mum to ask Jesus if they considered his right and his left. And Jesus says, you know, can, can you actually you know, be baptised with the baptism that I'm going to be baptised with? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 we can. They did not know what they were saying. This is my little thing. I actually think Jesus actually answered their prayer. If you think about what Jesus went through, because 
James was the first to suffer for Christ and lose his life, and John was the last. So in one sense, you could say they did sit at his right and his left. Because that's the way of the cross. Following on from this, it's crucial to see how John deals with this particular person in verse 10. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Gossiping maliciously about us. There's a saying, um, in the, I noticed this particularly in the country, that you should always, you heard this expression, let sleeping dogs lie. In other words, don't cause trouble. Three problems under the, under, in, the, in, in the church, particularly under the carpet. But you know, friends, there comes a time to confront things in the church especially if someone is being divisive. Remember what we heard last week from Leviticus 19. Love one another. This is Leviticus 19. Rebuke one another frankly. Love enough to care. Love enough to confront. Not to condemn, but to restore. Too often, friends... The tragedy is, is we allow things to go on with a polite hostility. That our love for one another is not deep and sincere and from the heart, but it simmers with resentment. Oh, brothers and sisters, that should not be. We should forgive as we have been forgiven and we should love. You know that great passage in 1 Corinthians 13? Think of that, friends, in the church. Love always hopes. Do you hope that your relationship will be restored? Or have you given up? Love always trusts. That means that you know you're going to you're going to actually open yourself up and expose yourself to being hurt once again. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. But you can only love like that if you know that God in Christ has first loved you like that. That he continues to persevere with you in a deep longing love and hope and that he will never let you out of the palm of his hand. Can you extend that same kind of love to each other? You see, a failure to do so is not only lacking in courage, it's cowardice it's lacking in love and so in as john himself models it's really important that sinful situations in the church are wisely courageously lovingly addressed that people like diotrephes are not allowed to continue as i've heard some ministers refer to as popes in a parish Now, on a more positive note, John just doesn't tell us about someone that is going wrong. He also tells us about someone who's doing what is right. And in verses 11 and 12, he goes on to specifically commend a person named Demetrius, someone who was practicing the gospel rather than tragically perverting the gospel. 
You see, we need to consciously, here's the truth, friends, we need to consciously and purposefully and intentionally choose good Christian role models because they are there in every church of people who exemplify what it means to walk in the truth. As John says in verse 11, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil. That is, watch out for the the, the diatrophies of this world who are in the church. Don't imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Because in every church, for every diatrophies, there's a Gaius, there's a Demetrius, You see, it's all too easy to get disillusioned and discouraged as a Christian by looking around at the church and they're there of the people that are doing what's wrong. The challenge, though, is to choose to not emulate them, but by God's grace to emulate those who are doing what is good, of what is right. Do you see? Don't be discouraged by those that are doing what is wrong. The Bible is so realistic at this point. We live in a fallen world. But it says, by God's grace, he will have broken in to some, indeed, I think, many lives, and you'll go, God lives in them. I see Christ in them. And I want to be like that. Now, I'd like to stop and ask you at this point to think about, and I'm asking you to be specific. You don't have to put up your hand or say anything out loud. But who do you look up to and emulate spiritually in the church? By the way, if you can't think of anyone, could you say that your life is an example that others could and should follow? As my old minister used to say to me, if you can't find an example to follow, set one. Set one. The senior minister who I work with in Cornerstone, Sydney, we had the name first, uh, is really a good model of patience and self-control. I often joke with him that his name's CS. I say, CS, you're often you're a, you're a lizard, you're a, you're a gecko. It's not an insult, by the way. It's actually an allusion to a particular verse in the book of Proverbs. Uh, in chapter thirty, if you're taking notes, you want to. I think this is a really great passage to sort of meditate on. Proverbs thirty, verses twenty-four to twenty-eight. I'll read it to you. It says this: Four things on earth are small, and yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, and yet they store up their food in summer. Conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their homes in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. And finally, a lizard can be caught with the hand, and yet it is found in king's palaces. See, it's the wisdom that's connected with that last particular um, creature that I think is manifested in my colleague, um, CS. He has strong opinions, strong convictions about things, but unlike me, 
He never gets involved too heavily in public debate or disagreement. Instead, he just goes about like a lizard, quietly moving around the scenes. That's how lizards go, don't they? They scatter around. And then all of a sudden, I realise that CS is not arguing with anyone like I am. All of a sudden, he's there at a conference, sitting on the same platform with Tim Keller or John Piper or Paul Tripp or someone. I'm going, how'd you do that? And the reason is, is because the lizard can be caught with a hand. Lizards don't bite. They don't scratch. And so people never feel threatened or intimidated. They just make their little way through the crevices, up the wall, and you go, whoa, look at that. You know, I need to be, I need to be more like that. But what about you? Who do you need to be more like? Can you think of particular people who are an example of a particular virtue that you would like to emulate? Now, you could say, oh, I don't want to put them on a pedestal. I've just got to say two things to you. This is what God tells us to do. And secondly, what God tells us to do, he's actually doing in these people, so you're honouring him by actually seeking to be like that person because it's only by God's grace that they're doing what is good. We've got to get beyond, you know, that horrible, horrible Aussie way of doing things that of what we call the tall poppy syndrome. If anybody shines or if anybody's particularly good or godly in that, we've just got to knock them down. That's quite frankly sinful. And we've got to get beyond that. And actually rejoice and praise God for the good things that we see in others. Well, that brings us to the fifth and the final aspect, and that is that the Apostle John addresses, and it's what it means to have a gospel priority. Now, you might think that these um, final couple of verses don't really have all that much to say. And, you know, it might be just good if we just don't make a big deal of them, skip to the end, pray, and we can go and have morning too. But I'd like you to take another look with me at the end of verse 15 in particular. Because I think this is the most challenging thing of all. And in particular, the very last sentence which says, Greet the friends there by name. Greet the friends there by name. Do you know, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this expression is mentioned. Greet the friends there by name. Oh, sorry, I'm wrong. There's one other place. One other place in the New Testament. And that's in John chapter 10, where Jesus, as the good shepherd, tells us that he calls his sheep by name. Same expression. Only other time it appears. And just as the chief shepherd knows each of his sheep by name, stop and think about this, we too should know the names of those who are in Christ's flock. Because this is really one of the key signs or indicators that we're truly interested in other people, that we truly love, is that we simply remember who they are. When I first graduated from college, um, I was sent to a town in outback New South Wales. It's a strange name, Weewall. And I was saying to uh, one of the elders in the church, I'd been there for a couple of months, 
And uh, I was really struggling. Like, you know, I'd be at morning tea and I'd be like, you are, you are. And uh, I, just, I just said to him, one of the elders, look, I'm just not very good at remembering names. Now, can I just say, I can still hear his words to what he said to me next because his rebuke to me was as swift as it was stunning. He said to me, quote, You know, Mark, I've noticed that people who are not very good at remembering other people's names just aren't all that interested in other people. Yeah. His words really hit me like a ton of bricks. Because once I got past my immediate defensiveness and I stopped and reflected on it, I realised he was right. I wasn't committed to learning other people's names because I really wasn't as interested in them as I should have been. Which is all the more serious and terrible when you realise that Jesus isn't like that. He knows each of his sheep by name. Could you imagine, you know, all of us who are his sheep are coming up to the great throne and Jesus is saying, you know, welcome Christian, welcome Raph, welcome uh, you are. <laughs> How bad would you feel? Oh, great. It's just me. It's Mark. He knows each of us by name. In fact, what, is, what does it say elsewhere in the scriptures? Our names are engraven in his hands. I've seen a lot of people with tats you know, tattoos around the place. I've never actually seen them put it on the palm of their hand. Which means that especially for anyone in church leadership, but for all of us as a church, if you really want to care and love other people, remember their name and call them by name. Well, we've come a long way, haven't we? And I wanted to conclude, though, by asking you a question. It's a bit of a different question, so prepare yourself, all right? That is, which aspect of 3 John, which I've mentioned, there's five of them, really gets under your skin? Um, that is, is it those that peddle a, a, a prosperity gospel? You just can't stand them. Or is it those who sponge off the church for financial assistance? Uh, is it those who are power hungry for prestige or control that are the gatekeepers of the church? Is it those who are really bad witness in the church and you've got them in your mind right now because they really discourage you? Or is it that you just can't stand those that constantly forget your name? Sorry, I know all of this is pretty negative, but which particular aspect of what I've talked about this morning do you find the most annoying? Well, can I suggest that's the very thing the Lord wants you to work on. He wants you to practice or avoid the very thing that you are the most concerned about. There's an old saying, be careful of pointing the finger at other people because when you do, there are three fingers pointing back at you. 
My children have learnt this very well now, so when they point the finger, they just do the high heel. <laughs> and you can see where that leads, hey? That's how it always is, right? Whenever I find myself, I don't know about you, but whenever I find myself, I'm driving around, you know, Strathfield where I live, and there's this strange thing that occurs to me. I start to get annoyed at all of the people like that of keeping their lawns a bit unkept. I know it sounds weird. It's always the time I've got to mow my lawn. And then when I mow my lawn, I'm so much more gracious to those, to those that haven't. Because Jesus, as he so famously says, it's so much easier to take the speck out of someone's eye when you've got the log in your own eye. But then notice this, once you take the log out of your own eye, it's not that you don't see the speck anymore, but what does Jesus say? Then you are able to see clearly how to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. The difference is this. Before, when you're judging hypocritically and you're looking at everybody's lawns and you see how long they are and how could they be so neglectful, right? And then you go and you mow your own lawn, something dramatically happens in you that you change from the inside. You stop judging and you start helping. I've actually been known to actually, those very people I've been most annoyed about, I've actually gone and said to one of my neighbours, hey, you know what, would you like me to help you? I can mow. I'm like, oh, that'd be wonderful. I, 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 I'm not well at the moment. That's why it's done. See what's, what's changed? So can I just say, brothers and sisters, make it your goal to put these truths into practice. Live in obedience to God's word. That's what it means to love. It's to walk in the truth. Be generous with those who are called into Christian ministry. Avoid being a gatekeeper, won't you, at church who will only fully support things if you agree with them and you approve. Be a good model as to what it means to follow Christ. And most of all, truly value the fellowship of other believers by going out of your way to learn their name. And may the Lord give us the grace to glorify his name. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord and Heavenly Father, you are the true and living God. All other gods are but man-made idols. You have spoken to us through your word this morning by your Holy Spirit, and for that we deeply thank you and praise you. Lord, you are, you are true and you have rescued us from the lies of Satan. Lord, you have revealed to us your love when we were just full of hate. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for failing to walk in obedience to your commands. Most of all, forgive us for failing to love each other. Father, we pray that you would so do a work of grace in us that we would forgive those that have sinned against us, that we would let go of hurt and that we would truly love that we would love in our prayers for them and in our practice, that we would seek to practically bless those that have actually hurt us. Father, keep us from having a judgmental spirit, a condemning attitude, and may we be a people, Lord, that reflect your love 
For in Christ you have forgiven us of everything. Father, may we cherish one another. And may it start by each and every person remembering each other's name. May it start there, Lord, but not finish. May we love one another deeply, just as you have loved us. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.